Thanks everyone for coming. My name is Kathleen McLean. I'm a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And we welcome you here acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that's been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. We also recognize the enduring presence of indigenous peoples on this land. Um, when we heard from Penguin Random House Canada that a new illustrated edition of Thomas King's award-winning best-selling Canadian classic, The Inconvenient Indian, was launching this fall, we were A, super excited because we're fans of the book, which is smart, searing, hilarious, important, and totally debunks the Elmo massacre uh, story. We're also really excited about the possibility of having Thomas King talk here at the AGO because he doesn't do this so often. So we're really grateful it could happen. I'd like to thank Shona Cook and everyone at Penguin Random House Canada for making it happen. And in thinking of who would be amazing in conversation with Thomas King, Candy Palmiter was our first choice and our first thought. And thank you. and how great that she said yes. So I'm going to introduce Candy and Thomas very quickly and then tell you how the event will go and then we'll just get to listen to them speak for about an hour. Uh, Candy Palmiter is a Mi'kmaq, sorry, gay Mi'kmaq actor, writer, comic, and activist. She graduated as valedictorian of her class at Dalhousie Law School and went on to practice labor law. She is a star of her own national TV show called The Candy Show on APTN and has acted in many other series, including The Trailer Park Boys on Netflix. Candy's also had her own national radio show and can be heard often on CBC Radio One. Most recently, Candy has signed a book deal. HarperCollins will be releasing her first book, a memoir, in the spring of 2019, and I hope we can launch it here. I will talk to your manager. Um, Thomas King, as you know, is one of Canada's premier intellectuals for the past five decades. He's worked as an activist for Native causes and administrator of Native programs, has taught Native literature and history at universities in the United States and Canada. He's the author of best-selling fiction, nonfiction, short stories, including The Back of the Turtle, Medicine River, Green Grass Running Water, Truth and Bright Water. I feel like you could all shout out your favorites in this part. Um, he's received numerous awards and honors, including the National Aboriginal Achievement Award, the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction, the RBC Taylor Prize, British Columbia's National Award for Canadian Nonfiction, the Trillium Award, and the Order of Canada. You can't get in that way. Um, so, following the conversation, we'll have time for a few audience questions. We love questions. We don't like paragraphs that just go up at the end and seem like a question as much as actual questions. So, we'll just remember that. Um, Thomas has graciously agreed to sign some books following the talk, so when the talk is over, he's going to head right for that table, and he won't be mobbed by fans on the way. He's just going to walk to that table and, and stay there and sign books for you. Um, one detail, we are really honored to be able to show a short film um, based on one of Thomas's short stories called A Short History of Indians in Canada by Nancy Beeman, who is here with us in the audience. Thank you, Nancy, for allowing us to share this film. It's brand new, like a fresh, brand new film. And because it's been submitted for festival consideration, you can't record it. And if you do, we'll be really mad. So don't. Um, and with that, please join me in welcoming Candy Palmiter and Thomas King. Thank you.
I like um, I like how smoothly Kathleen said, you know, we asked her and she said yes. What really happened is um, a few years ago, I was at the Banff Center for a gig and I arrived, I checked in, and rumor had it, Thomas King was on the premises. Now, if you've seen me walk, you know that I walk with a cane. I don't walk very fast and I don't walk very far. But in the two and a half days I was at the Banff Center, I trekked back and forth to the cafeteria about 27 times each hour with the hopes of accidentally bumping into Mr. King, in which point I thought I will drop my bag or something and then say, oh, look who it is, what a coincidence. Three and a half days of stalking or two and a half days of stalking, absolutely no success. Uh, I then went on to have a show on CBC Radio. The first thing I said was, Thomas King, can you get him? The whole summer went by, we couldn't get him. So when the uh, art gallery said, we've got Thomas King, I said, you have to let me do it or else. So it is an honor and it has been long waiting to have you here beside me for an in-depth conversation. And, and this is the or else. This is the or else, that's right. Be, before we start, I, I have to apologize. I'm not 100%. We just flew back from Greece and I wound up with a case of the Air Canada flu. So uh, I have my handy bottle of medicinal whatever up here and uh, hope that my voice holds up. Well, so far, it's the first interview I've ever done where it starts with a couple of spoonfuls of uh, cold medicine. So we're, we're off for a good night. I can't cold, wait for it to take effect. Co cold medicine? Oh, well. Oh, right, right, cold the, medicine. The cold medicine. Now, before we start talking, uh, everyone's going to see a film. Can you let folks know, give us an intro for that film? Yeah, this is uh, a number of years ago. I wrote a short story called A Short History of Indians in Canada. And uh, it was a satiric piece, one of my favorite pieces, my short pieces. And I always wanted to see it turned into an animated short, but I had no idea how to do that. I certainly don't have the talent to do it. And I was at Sheridan uh, doing a talk, and somebody asked me you know, what my projects were or what I would like to do. And so I said, uh, well, I'd, I'd like to see this turned into an animated short. And then a woman came up to me afterwards and said, I can do that. And I thought, all right, here we go. And it turned out it was uh, Nancy Beeman, uh, who was the head of the anima uh, animation department at uh, Sheridan. You may have a more a glorified title. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, sh she is the woman to see. And so before I could turn around almost, uh, she had put together a team, and they had begun to do uh, the boards for it, and suddenly there it was. We had it, uh, had it finished. Uh, so that's the film that you're going to see tonight. Uh, a little bit on the edgy side, I suppose, but that's where I've always lived, so <laughs> that should not surprise anyone here. When someone else takes your humor, you know, humor is such a personal thing, how do you feel that translated? Did, did you get the same feel that you were trying to put out? Yeah, no, I think, I think the, 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 the humor was fairly sharp in the original. And I, I think it remains sharp here. As a matter of fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the film uh, wound up annoying some people, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't mind that. Uh, you know, you, you, th there's no one audience that you write for, ever. And uh, so I look at it and I say, does it, does it please me? And it does, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. 
And that's what I do in my writing. Well, I think it pleases this crowd as well. So. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. But, but, but it's okay if it doesn't. <laughs> you know? It is. You're open to that? I'm open to that, yeah. I have to, you have to be as an artist. You have to be open for somebody coming along and saying, that is the biggest, stupidest, dumb thing I've ever seen anybody do. Uh, and if they don't say it to you, they say it as they walk out of the uh, auditorium. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's all right. It's all right. Do you, do you ever feel defensive about it, or are you at a place where... No, no, I, I've, I'm, I'm too old for that anymore. Uh, when I was, uh, it's true, when I was 50, you know, 52, 53, <laughs> how old is this guy? <laughs> 74. Um, I, I was more concerned about myself and my reputation. At this point in life, I'm concerned about the art that I produce. Mm. And, you know, what, what happens with it... Because here's the truth about writing. When you, when you write a book, as I do, and you'll find this out too, um, and you send it out into the world, you lose control of it. It's no longer yours. It's sort of like kids. You send them out of the house, and you hope to hell that they have a good time and that they do well, and they send you a postcard every so often, or at least phone. But you've got no control over that. What people do with it, how they see it, how they understand it, how they misunderstand it, that's all going to go into that process of a book out in the world or a story out in the world or a film out in the world or, or a piece of art, a painting, for that matter. I mean, Kent Monkman is a perfectly good example of that. Mm. Uh, and we're going to talk about Kent in terms of his work in good, this. Good. But speaking of sending a book out into the world and then it's no longer yours, when The Inconvenient Indian came out, um, I certainly took it as mine. And I think a lot of indigenous people had that same feel for it. In fact, I got so personal about it that when it was in the Canada Reads competition, um, I think that's the only time anybody's ever seen me negative tweet because I was so furious at the arguments that were being made and I was sending death threats into the CBC um, to, the, to the point that they had a little security check on me the next time I came. But here we are all these years later and it is an illustrated version. Why an illustrated version and why now? Well, um, I was really pleased when the original edition came out, which was not illustrated. They uh, double dated a marvelous job on the design and everything. And I thought that was it. And I wasn't going to do a sequel um, uh, or a prequel for that matter. And I thought, I'm really happy with that, and I moved on to fiction. And then one day they called me up and said, we'd like to do an illustrated edition. I thought, oh, God, no. You know, slap a few photographs in there, you know, call it illustrated. I really don't think so. It's, you know, it's... But they, they, they talked to me, and uh, they told me what they wanted to do. And uh, I thought, well, we'll give it a try and see how it goes. And so my son, who teaches at uh, University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, uh, got into the mix and began to do research on old documents and photographs and paintings and whatnot and all the kind of memorabilia of history that we could use to illustrate the book. And Doubleday's research team got in there too and did just a marvelous job on finding the materials and, and doing the layout. The layout's quite nice. And then they asked me if I could put some of my photographs in of native people. I said, sure, which gave it a nice contemporary feel. So all in all, the illustrated version was much more than I had ever expected. I, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with uh, the way that book came out. And it is, 
in many ways different from the original. The text is the same, but the illustrations really add uh, another level to the complexity of that relationship uh, between uh, natives and non-natives. It sure does, and it does it right from the first time you open the book. Can we put the image up of that Kent Monkman piece that's on the front end pages of the book? Uh, when I received it in the mail, I opened it, and I didn't get past that page for about an hour. Um, can you talk to me about this, this image and how you think it sets, sets the scene? Yeah, well, it, 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 in many ways, this image is uh, it's, it's not... It's not satiric, uh, and Kent Monkman's, most of his stuff is satiric, you know, tongue-in-cheek, biting humor. I, I, I love the guy uh, for what he does with his, uh, with his creative talents. Uh, this is really sort of an illustration of that, uh, that uh, grab that uh, the Canadian government made, made of uh, Native children. But the joke for me is that that grab has not stopped. Uh, I, I read someplace that there were just as many children in care now as there were in residential schools back in the early 1900s. And so Kent's uh, image is on the one hand, uh, you know, reminiscent of that older period, and on the other hand, a reminder that that hasn't changed all that much. That was a question I was wondering as I was going through this book. In your mind, how has Canada changed from the first time this book came out to now? Oh boy, um, you, you, you have to understand, I'm, I'm a grump. I, I'm, I'm a pessimist. Uh, You've earned it. I know. I, I wake up every morning hoping that things will be different, knowing that they probably won't be. Um, I had very high hopes at the last federal election with the promises that were made. And uh, was, it was sort of like same old, same old all over again. As soon as the election's over, all those promises go by the boards. It's, it's devastating. If you're a native person in Canada, it is devastating. Yes, Canada probably treats their native people better than the U.S. does. Yes, there have been strides that have been made, but many of those things have been band-aids. And let me say very clearly, the last thing I want is another apology mm. from the government or from the churches or anybody else. Because quite frankly, those apologies don't mean a thing. Now, I know that many Native people appreciated the, uh, the apology that, uh, what's his name, gave way back when. And, and, he who shall not be named. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I, I'm happy that they appreciated that. But apologies without actions are worthless. Yeah. And there's been very little action on the really critical issue, Native rights, land rights, treaty rights, um, and the Canadian government keeps getting in our way, you know. Uh, they keep fighting court cases that their own Supreme Court has ruled against them on, and it means that we have to use our, uh, our resources and our money and our effort and the efforts of some of our most talented people to try to do what the Canadian government should have done a long time ago, what the, what the courts have told them to do. And it is absolutely maddening. Now, most of you don't have to live in that neighborhood most of the time, but we do. And uh, it uh, just makes me want to scream sometimes. You'll, you'll see in the afterword that I was not kind to our, uh, our newly minted prime minister. 
that's how angry I was. On that topic of that newly minted prime minister. Buy the book just for the afterwards. <laughs> um, just this week, uh, it's interesting that we're having this conversation right now. Uh, let me preface this by saying I am a Tragically Hip fan. I have all the same stories other Canadians have. Uh, the first time I heard the EP and all the times I saw them perform live. Um, and I'm thrilled that Gord chose in the final moments of his life to, uh, to take up the cause that he did. Um, you know, but as that was happening, before he died, as the talk of the Wenjack situation happened, I thought, yes, it's wonderful. Canadians can think about this child that died 50 years ago um, on the tracks. Um, but the kids that didn't die, they're dying slowly, as we just saw depicted in your film, on the streets of Toronto and Winnipeg and everywhere else. And after his death, to have them talk about, to give him the Order of Canada for leadership in Indigenous rights, um, when the founders of, of Idle No More still don't have that, uh, that in their cap. Thank you. Um, it seems to me it's the same old um, narrative from all the way back at To Kill a Mockingbird through Dances with Wolves of the great white hero. And when our prime minister, with tears in his eyes, said, you know, he wanted a better country for us. And I thought, wow. So did, so did my dad. So did a lot of people want a better country. Uh, the Royal Commission told you how much we wanted a better country. Why does it matter so much now that a, that a, a white person has said it? Your thoughts on that? <laughs> You're a real bitch, Candy. <laughs> Put me between a rock and a hard place. Do I like Gord Downey? Yeah. Do I like his music? Yeah, it's fine. Um, do, but, I, do I appreciate the fact that he, uh, you know, helped to bring this to the public's notice, even though we certainly knew about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do. And he certainly gave it a, you know, a wide platform. The Canadian reaction, though, that's the thing. Yeah, uh, but it, it, you're, you're right. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking uh, mm, Kevin Costner and Dances with the Wolves. Now, that's not Gord's fault, okay? Mm -hmm. It's just that it seems to be more powerful coming out of the mouth of a non-native than it does coming out of the mouth of a native. Because you look at us, I, I, I don't blame you, and you say, well, they've got a vested interest. Damn straight we do. Mm -hmm. And it's a big vested interest, and it's not going to go away. Um, I, I don't know what to do about that, uh, to be honest with you. Um, do you think that will ever end, that narrative of... And, and why is it that you think people grab that so quick and so easily where they couldn't grab the founders of Idle No More with, that, with the same fever? Uh, well, it, it hasn't changed yet. Uh, I mean, it's not so many years ago that if a Native uh, person uh, testified in court, they had to have a white person who, who uh, vouched for them. Uh, that's not been that many years ago. Uh, is it going to change? I, I, I don't know. I'd like to think it's going to change, but I haven't seen any indication that it's going to just yet. Um, I mean, it is true that uh, uh, you're all very gracious to come down here, uh, 400 strong, to listen to us bitch about <laughs> the situation. And, you know, if you can, you know, talk to your government. Uh, because uh, I know that there are a great many people who are supportive of native rights, who are supportive of land claims. I mean, it's not as though uh, tribes are going after land that they never had before. 
They're actually going after land that they did have and was taken away from them. Um, so I don't know, is it, is it going to change? Uh, it won't change in my lifetime, I don't think, especially if I keep drinking that awful cough syrup. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe something will happen. I mean, uh, everybody got excited about Idle No More, but I've been alive long enough to have seen Idle No More in the 60s and the 70s right. and the 80s and the 90s. And it's this wave that peaks up that we just finally say we've had enough. Enough is enough. And then we hold on for as long as we can with that kind of activity, with that kind of activism. But we've got families. We've got jobs. Uh, we just cannot keep it going, and the powers that be know that. And so then things sort of slide away, and then they wait for another generation, then up they come again, and people, people say, what, didn't we get that said last time? You know, what are they upset about this time? Well, it's the same thing. Hmm. Nothing's been settled. And that's really the narrative, the Canadian narrative, is that nothing has been settled yet. Now, I asked you the question, how is Canada different since the first edition of the book? Now I'd like to ask you, how is Thomas King different since the first edition of the book? Well, he's older and grumpier, that's for sure. <laughs> Not much fun to be around when he's in that mood. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I keep trying to figure out King as I write. One of the reasons I write is to try to figure out the world and I suppose try to figure out myself. Have I gotten any smarter? I really doubt it. Uh, has my memory gotten any better? No. I can hardly remember the book, to be honest with you. Um, I don't think I've gotten any more hopeful as the years go on. Like I said, the last federal election and the aftermath really, really did one on me. I thought, finally, you know, a young guy who gets it, you know, who's made the kinds of promises that you just can't walk away from. But I forgot, I forgot. These are politicians. I ran for federal office once, by the way. I don't know if you know that or not. Yeah, tell that story for people who don't remember that. I did, I did. Uh, Jack Layton asked me if I would run for the NDP, and uh, I'm not a political guy particularly. I really don't trust any of the parties. But uh, the NDP had policies closest to my heart, and so I said, okay, I would. And I thought, okay, you know, uh, my family told me not to do it, to, to a person. They said, don't do it, don't do it. I said, no, I'm going to do it. No, don't do it. And I said, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to get myself elected and go to... And I told Jack, I said, uh, I said, if I get elected, don't expect me to keep my mouth shut. You know, you may have to put me on the back bench, but I'm not going to keep my mouth shut, especially about Native issues, but other issues too. And uh, I, I didn't win. I came... Uh, well, I beat the marijuana party, <laughs> and I beat the animal rights party. I came in fourth out of a three-person race, and that was the end of my political career. But what I learned, for me at least, that politics is no place to make changes. I'd rather do it at the grassroots level. I'd, I'd rather work with people who have a vested interest in uh, what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think that politicians have a vested interest in that. I think they have a vested interest in getting reelected and for the parties to continue. I mean, in all the time that the conservatives and the liberals have held power in Ottawa, very little has changed for Native people. Would that happen if there was an NDP federal government? I know some of you are just sh shivering in your boots about the prospect of that. <laughs> 
tax and spend. <laughs> I don't know. It may be that they would be no better than anybody else. It may be that they would surprise me, but I'm not surprised by the two parties that have held power all this time. I'll tell you, uh, I had the opportunity to be working for government in the province of Nova Scotia when the NDP took power then. And uh, when it was looking like it was going to swing that way, I was working in the Department of Education as the director of Mi'kmaq Education. And I said to my mom and dad, when this election drops, you're going to see a streak. And that is going to be me with the football tucked, charging to the end zone, because at no other point in my career will the government's values be so aligned with the work that I'm doing. They got in. What happened? They got in, and then um, to Wait try not to try not to alienate the uh, the people who didn't vote for them, they got in. They said we're going to be fiscally responsible, and I got. I, I I had less autonomy. I had less leverage than I had both through the Liberals and the PCs. I ended up retiring uh, out of government under an NDP banner. So I'm at the point now where I think. What you said, that's not the level that's going to change it. It has to change at this level. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know how it's going to change, but uh, we, we keep working on it. Uh, we're not going away. Uh, there was uh, probably around the 19th century, uh, at the end of the 19th century, there was a word that went out that Indians were dying, that we were dead for the most part, and that you wouldn't have to worry about as much anymore. Treaties really in essence, were sort of a stopgap. You know, give the Indians a treaty, then they die off, and then the treaty doesn't mean anything, and the land comes back to, uh, to non-natives. That didn't happen. We didn't die off. Uh, certainly, there was a low point in uh, population and uh, mortality, but that's turned around. And we have very, very long memories, very long memories. And quite frankly, we share those memories with our children. And the fight that we started will be carried on by the next generation. You, you can count on that. Uh, if you can think of a way to affect change uh, at the federal and the provincial level, then do it. Don't ask me. Don't ask me what I can do. Just do it. Helen's down there waving her hand at me. No, she's not, okay? That's my partner. She sits in the front row to tell me what I should say. Perfect. She sends me these little mental messages, and she has little hand signals when I'm talking too long or I've said the wrong thing. <laughs> but it's really hard for me to figure out exactly what she wants until afterwards. Well, and, and your partner is sitting right next to my partner, and so I'm not... Maybe the two of them are making plans for after that. We there's, don't even know. There's but an empty seat between the two. I don't know who that's for. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Now, once I got past this page... The book fell open at a beautiful picture of our dear departed friend, Richard Wagamese. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about your, yes, absolutely, give Richard a hand of yeah. applause. Do we, do we have it here? Um, it? It, it was on the opening roll. I'm not sure if they can bring it up uh, okay. right now. It was on that roll that we were looking at in the opening. Can you talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Richard and uh, your thoughts around his, some of his work? Yeah, let me, uh, let me preface it by saying what happened there was that uh, back in the early 90s, I decided to do a photographic uh, tour the same way that uh, Edward Sheriff Curtis did. And so my brother and I packed up my old Volvo with all sorts of gear 
and uh, we went around the U.S. and Canada taking portraits of Native artists in both countries. And we wound up on the set of North of 60, where Richard was working at the time, and I, I did that shot of Richard. That's where it took place in Alberta. And uh, Richard was a, a longtime friend of mine and one of the best writers that I know. He was, he was gifted. Uh, uh, Medicine Walk uh, oh. was one of my favorite books of his. He was, uh, he was a gentleman, uh, one of the best orators I've ever known. It was amazing. He, he gave me an introduction at Banff, and I thought, I got to bring this guy with me wherever I go. <laughs> Uh, he was just—he uh, was just so generous. Uh, it really hurt me deeply when I heard that he had died. He was far too young to do something like that, uh, although it wasn't his fault, I suppose. Um, but uh, he, he was just a wonderful writer. Wonderful writer. What a beautiful homage to put that picture. Yeah. Uh, in the collection. And so many of these pictures in the book taken by you. And I'll tell you, this 74 years young uh, fellow, when we first got up on the stage, uh, dropped down on one knee and got his camera out and took a picture of me. And I said, well, this year I have had Margaret Atwood sketch a picture of me while I was interviewing. <laughs> and now Thomas King on his right knee taking a picture of me. I can get hit by a bus when I leave here, and I'll feel all right about it. Yeah, they, 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 they had to bring in a crane to get me back <laughs> up again. Yeah. How, this, how this, much do you love photography in comparison I, I, to writing? Actually, I was a photographer long before I was a writer. Uh, I was a photojournalist in Australia and New Zealand. Then I did wow. commercial photography for a while, but I love photography too much to do it as a job. So I do it now as simply exhibition. Uh, I should tell you on this picture of Richard when we were there, I said, I want to take a picture of you, Richard. And he says, well, uh, what am I supposed to do? And I says, well, look, uh, you know, look cool. <laughs> <laughs> and he did this. I thought, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> he looks pensively cool there. Pensively yeah, actually, he does look kind of cool, you know. <laughs> There's a trap behind him and an old door, and uh, he's got his T-shirt on. Uh, he was a big heart, that is for sure. He, huge heart. Huge heart, but best of all, his writing. If you haven't mm -hmm. read Richard Wagamese, you really have to read him. Absolutely. Medicine Walk was my favorite as well. I felt like he, he entered a different level yeah. with that book. I, I think so, too. Yeah. Medicine Walk was, uh, was spare. It was uh, beautifully written, uh, very sharp-edged. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He spoke at an event that I was at, and it, uh, it touched me deeply very similarly to when you did the Massey Lectures back in, I think that was 2003, somewhere around then, 2003, 2004, I think. And you What's the year today? <laughs> you spoke um, in the first lecture. You told a story about your mom, yeah. which sounded so much like the now uh, famous Hollywood movie, Hidden Figures. And then uh, you talked about your dad. Yeah. And you talked about the fact that those stories will define you, and they'll define you forever. Yeah. When you arrived tonight, you said you had just gotten back from Greece, where you tried to track down some of those stories. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip to Greece and how that plays into your overall story? Yeah, most of the men in my life disappeared early on. My father deserted the family when I was not even three. 
and uh, I didn't know uh, my father's side of the family, so if there were grandparents there, you know, so much. But I was always raised by women in the family, my, my mother, my aunts, my grandmother. And the only guy in the family who did not take off was my grandfather, but he died when I was about three, too. Mm. It's a bad narrative, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, uh, and this is the Greek side of the family, is the Cherokee side and the Greek side. And my grandfather, uh, according to my mother, loved me dearly, and I was the firstborn boy in the family, and so because of that, because of that, I wound up getting his name, which was Athanasios. Uh, any Greeks in the audience? Yeah, in the back. Hey, in the yeah. back there. Kalispera. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, and he had, he had come over from uh, uh, Evia, which is an island, and uh, he'd come over in the early 1900s, and his idea always was to go back to Greece. And uh, he got waylaid the two times he tried to do it, once by the death of the pigs in his pig herd, which pretty much bankrupted him, and secondly, by World War II. So he never made it back. And my mother's generation, all of her sisters and brothers, never made it back to Greece. And so this year I decided I was going to go back and try to find his village uh, just because sort of to close the circle. He had wanted to go back. You know, I'm his namesake. He was Thomas. I'm Thomas. Athanasios, Athanasios. And so uh, we went back to uh, Kimi and uh, tromped around this 2,000-person village not knowing what the hell we were doing and wound up at the town hall and looked at the town hall records and I had a little bit of information on my grandfather, his date of birth, which turned out to be wrong, and where he was born in Kimi, which turned out to be wrong also. And, but the guy at the town hall opened up this big book and found my great-grandparents and my grandfather and his sisters and brothers and we found out that they were from uh, a small village near Kimi called Malitiani. And so we caught a cab. It was four kilometers. We caught a cab up to Malitiani. Uh, my, my Greek is almost non-existent. I can, I can borrow a car. And I can ask, as I did, which means, do you speak English? And so we got to this little village of a hundred souls and there was nobody there. And we walked around and walked around, Helen and myself, and we turned a corner and there were about six people by this cart pulled by a donkey, perfect shot, <laughs> that had vegetables on the back that the people were buying. And I had this sheet that I'd gotten from the uh, town hall and I showed it to them. And uh, I said, you know, Athanasius uh, Kuslis. And they go, oh, Kuslis, Kuslis, Kuslis. Ah, yeah, George Kuslis. I said, George, yes, my uncle, uh, Athanasius. No, I couldn't speak Greek, they couldn't speak English. We waved our hands and talked loudly. <laughs> and we had a very good time and got no information whatsoever. So we went walking back through the village again. And this time, one of the old men who had been at the cart grabbed us and took us over to this, uh, this big stone house on about two acres of land and said, George Kuslis, George Kuslis. And let us know that this was the Kuslis ancestral pile as it were. This is the house that, uh, that George uh, had owned that probably was the house that my great-grandfather owned that my grandfather grew up in. So I was able to walk that land and actually able to see the house itself, to touch the house. And 
it's, it's, it's funny, but that was a magical moment. That's, that's one part where I can actually touch the past. I, I can't do that all that much because in some ways I'm an orphan in the world. I, you know, I'm just sort of floating alone. But for that one moment, I was able to reach out and touch my grandfather's past. And that was magic. That was magic. Did that free you from some of the, the constraints of that story that you talked about at Massey all those years ago? I don't know if it, if it freed me from the restraints of that story, but it certainly made me want to buy the place. <laughs> we went back down to the village, and there was a guy who owned a restaurant. We call him the English menu because uh, when we first got there and went to dinner there, they had nothing but a Greek menu. And I said, do you have an English menu? And the woman who didn't speak any English said, ah, 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 which is a universal sign for one minute. One minute. And about two minutes later, this guy comes roaring, roaring up on this motorcycle and says, I am your English menu. <laughs> and, and he was. He was. Amazing. And uh, so, where was I going with that? <laughs> who cares? It was a great story. <laughs> Now, I, there was a man that came into my life that um, has, has since disappeared who, you know, he waltzed in, he made me fall in love with him, and um, now I haven't heard from him in years, and his name is Thump's Dreadful Water. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are not in on that uh, notion, there was two incredible uh, mystery books uh, with a guy named Thumps Dreadful Water as the detective. Yes. Yeah. First one, Dreadful Water shows up, and the second one, I think, The Red Power Murders yeah. was the name oh, of it. Oh, my dirty little secret. And did I fall in love with Thumps, but oh. where is he, and when am I going to see him again? Well, you're, you're, you're in luck. Um, what happened, I, I like mysteries, okay, but I'm a literary writer, for God's sakes. I don't want to write a mystery, and have people say, oh, the poor man, you know, he used to write literary fiction, now he's reduced to writing genre fiction. <laughs> but I, I, I like mysteries. I, I like good mysteries. And so years ago, I decided I'd write a mystery series. And uh, I decided on my character as Thump's Dreadful Water. Now, Dreadful Water is a, is a major name in, in, in Cherokee land, in the nation. Uh, Thump's came in a roundabout way. I had written away for a magazine and the woman who spoke English as a second language asked me to spell my name, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. You see where this is going. When I got the magazine, it was addressed to Thumps King. And all I can figure is that she didn't close the top of the O, and when she did the capital A, she dropped one leg down, and somebody says, Thumps, it's a strange name, but okay. So I used it for the character, and I, I wrote two novels in fairly quick succession, as you say, and then I got on to uh, bigger projects <coughs> and had to leave Thumps behind. And they hadn't sold very well. I have to admit, they hadn't sold very well. And so uh, a, a year ago, I guess, I went back to Harper and said, hey, guys, uh, are you interested in re-releasing the first two and then I'll write three more at least. And they said, we'll be interested in releasing the first two when you write the three other ones. Nice. They had no faith in me at all. I don't know why. <laughs> and so I did. And so I've, I've just finished the fifth one. 
And so, my goodness, I'm so excited. So the first, the first one that's out now is called Dreadful Water. But those of you who, re who read the first Dreadful Water, Dreadful Water shows up. It's the same book. Okay. And then they're going to re-release Red Power Murders. And then they're going to release three, four, and five. And even more fun than that, I just signed an option deal on a TV series for Dreadful Water. Oh, my goodness. Congratulations. Yeah. How amazing. All right. I, I get to play thumps. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. My acting career is limited, and it certainly isn't going to be that. But it would be kind of exciting to have that on television. Can you reveal any information in terms of what channel it's going to roll on? No, no, no. We just, we just signed okay. the option. I mean, this thing probably won't happen. All right? This is what TV... No, I'm serious. No, it's true. TV is like that. Yeah, you know, TV's like that. Uh, very few things get through. Uh, this might... Uh, when I was a very young writer, I wrote Medicine River. Uh, a year after I wrote Medicine River, they made it into a, a movie. I got, wow, this is easy. <laughs> it's never happened again. Yeah. yeah. Never happened again. So this may work out, this may not, but nonetheless, uh, I'll have at least five books in the series. Oh, it's like the urban myth of that guy that actually came <laughs> back. They usually never actually come back. Yeah. And... The original mystery that I start with, the Obsidian Murders, that gets solved in book five, just so you know. Oh, nice. Isn't that fun? Now, Don't read them out of order. No, definitely. <laughs> but speaking of those things that you've done that we all wish would come back, 1997 to 2000, can we say what it is? That's right. Stay calm, be brave, wait for the signs. <laughs> That it only ran three years, given the stuff that sticks around forever, is shocking and appalling to me. Do you, right? Am I right? Do you think it was ahead of its time? I don't know if it was ahead of its time. It was different. It was different. I mean, for one thing, it was a 15-minute show. And I think CB said, CBC thought, what harm can he do in 15 minutes? <laughs> oh, those poor fools. Um, it... I mean, it was, a, it was a native satire show, uh, but what, what, what made it work, okay, you remember the show, right? What made it work were uh, Floyd Fable, Starr, and Edna Rain, who played uh, Jasper and Gracie Heffyhan. Um, anybody could have played my voice, but those two were magic together. Oh, you, you are... Unjustly humble in that no, no, moment. No, 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 no. That show no. lit me up like a Christmas tree, yeah. and I was so excited. I thought, oh, this is going to run forever, and I was shocked when it, when it did come to an end. And I wondered if it was, because in 15 minutes, boy, oh, boy, did you ever have a lot to say. So fun, lots of laughs, yeah. but boy, did it give us something to think about yeah. afterwards. Well, it was my fault for the show dying, because I had to stop it when I ran for uh, Parliament. Oh, that's what that happened. Why? Yeah, we were right in the middle of a uh, uh, a live tour. Good and God, you picked politics over that. I know, I know. Politics over dead dogs. Shoot me. Wow. Just shoot me. Yeah. Do you think there'll ever be a revival? I don't think so because part of the magic was we had the three people <laughs> there who could do it. Uh, I don't know where Edna is. I don't know where Floyd is at this point in time. I don't even know if they'd be interested in uh, putting it back together again. God knows there's enough good material out there. Oh, my Lord. 
with Donald Trump as president of the United States. Oh, I, mean, I was hoping I'd have we to were throw stuff it. away just to keep the really good stuff. I was hoping we would make it the whole night without actually mentioning him. Yeah, I know. Um, I know. I yeah. tried. I tried. It. Uh, yeah, that's just a that's a that's a show for a whole other channel. I've been working on a show called Quack about a guy and his duck. Oh, I, I thought that was going show. back to Trump. No, no. The quack. <laughs> but uh, a part of it is it's very hard to mount a radio show anymore. I mean, when Dead Dog came along, CBC was, uh, was fairly well-funded. They were interested in innovative stuff. They were interested in kind of cuckoo stuff. And I had a really good producer who was able to honcho that right through the CBC hierarchy. Now it uh, is very difficult. It'd be easier for me to do podcasts if I even knew what those things were um, for a radio show than get it on CBC again. I have but to listen, say. I'm, I, I'm willing to listen to offers. Uh, any CBC executives out there? Don't raise your hand, just find me afterwards. <laughs> I feel your pain on that front. I had eight glorious weeks last summer, and that was that. <laughs> so, yeah. But I thank you. I look at life um, as three acts, and the really lucky people get an encore. So I see uh, zero to 30 as your first act, 30 to 60 as your second act, um, 60 to 90 as your third act. And if you make it past 90, to me, that's the encore, and you're, you're very fortunate. My you mother's can. 95. She is getting quite an encore. Oh, she is. She is. Oh, she's dear. And you, my friend, are in act three. Don't remind what? me. Jeez. What I would like to know, as, as, we a, as a person sitting here in Act Two yeah. and, um, and thinking about already... Oh, yeah, that's what you say. <laughs> already uh, at 48, I, I see things that have changed. I th see things that haven't changed. Um, and I'm already thinking about what is it that, you know, that I want to do bef before this trip is over. As you're sitting in your third act, are there, are there rocks that haven't been unturned? Are there places that you still, in terms of artistically, that you still would like to explore that maybe you haven't touched yet? I mean, we've seen you as a filmmaker, we've seen you as a novelist, we've seen you as a writer of nonfiction, as a professor, um, a photographer. I, I can't even think of all the incredible hats that you've worn. Is there still a frontier that you have not breached that you would like to? Yes. Actually, uh, one of the things I'm working on is a musical. Oh, my goodness. My, my mother was a, a great musical fan. Uh, every Sunday, she would put on uh, these old musicals, uh, South Pacific, uh, Guys and Dolls, Damn Yankees, uh, uh, Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. And I, I can <laughs> sing all of those songs. But Eden Robinson, uh, if you know Eden, uh, she's an Aboriginal writer, very good one. Uh, Keeler when shortlisted. To, when we get together, uh, we sing musicals. You know, we see each other across the room, and she goes, you know, uh, the girl that I marry will have to be. <laughs> and then I pick it up, and uh, it goes on from there. And what do you say when you pick it up? And pick, well, I, I, I do the other one. I went to Kansas City on a Friday. By Saturday, I learned a thing or two. Anyway, <laughs> nobody wants to hear me sing, except Eden. She loves to hear me sing. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a musical. Uh, Aboriginal musical on Dead Dog Cafe, Dead Dog Cafe the musical. Oh, wow. So, and I'm, 
writing the songs and uh, you know doing the uh, what's the thing called the the part where the writing is the the script the play well no there's a particular name for it within the musical what libretto thank you oh there you go yeah I keep thinking a libretto is something from Italian opera and it probably is but uh, so I'm writing the, I'm doing the whole thing because I don't play well with other children. Uh, I like that you can admit that, though. Is that something that you're only now in your third act able to admit, no, or have you no, always? No, no, no. I knew it a long time ago. I just tried to pretend that it wasn't true. But I don't play well with other <laughs> children. So it's hard for me to get into a situation where I have to deal with other voices. And that's what makes the musical hard, because you have mm. to deal with the director. You have to deal with, uh, you know, people who think they know more about music than you. And, and they do, but... <laughs> but that doesn't stop me. Um, and you've got to deal with actors. Oh, my God. <clears throat> but I'm hoping that I'll be able to get that done at some point, because I think it'd be a lot of fun. Oh, I think it would be tremendous fun. Yeah. I'm going to be trying to try out for that, for yeah, sure. I'll there be you go. looking for an audition. Me too. <laughs> I keep wanting to act. I mean, one, of the, one of the dirty little secrets I have is that uh, when I was... Way back when, when I just went to university, I wanted to be an actor. I did, I did uh, uh, summer stock. I, I did uh, st uh, st theater work. Uh, and I wanted to be the next Indian John Wayne, basically. And You've what got I the height. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I was even taller then. I've shrunk. <laughs> but what I discovered, much to my chagrin, is that I was really a shitty actor. <laughs> and all these years, I've been trying to sneak my way into productions to see if my skills have gone up. And they have in some ways. I just did a gig on Private Eyes, playing myself. Actually, the producers of the show called me and said, would you like to be in an episode where you play yourself? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And they said, we'll send you the sides, which are the lines. And when they came, it had John Irving's name on the... Uh... <laughs> they hadn't even had the decency to cross his name out and put me in. <laughs> And a bigger man would have been pissed off. <laughs> but I was just happy as a pig in mud to be on the set. And I'm still not a good actor, but I, I do love it so much. It's been such a long journey. You have given Canadians um, so much beautiful art in so many different forms. Um, it's a question that I love to ask people. It's not a standard interview question. But given the journey that you have been on all these years, now at 74, at this point in your life, are you happy, Thomas King? Are you a happy man? I hear Helen laughing in the audience. <laughs> she knows the answer to this question. And the answer is no. 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 Uh, it's been a really great journey. Uh, it's been interesting as hell. It has been painful in many ways, uh, especially having gone through all of the things in and around Native affairs and uh, Native non-Native relationships. Um, but I've, I've, never, I've never come to a place where I'm at peace with the world. And I suppose maybe my writing is uh, where I battle that out and try to figure out, you know, wh what place I have in that world. It doesn't feel like I've got a place, by the way. And I think a lot of Native people feel the same way. Uh, I don't have a reserve here in Canada. I'm Cherokee out of Oklahoma. Uh, I'm not a member of the nation down there uh, legally. 
so I really am, I've, I've always been kind of a turtle figure, you know, I just carry my stuff around with me and uh, when the going gets rough, I just pull my head in and just wait it out. Uh, but no, I've never been comfortable in a space. Uh, being in Canada probably is the most comfortable I've been. I've been here half my life, half my life here, half my life in the U.S. I'd never go back to the U.S. Uh, it's just not comfortable for a native person down there, I don't think. Um, but no, I, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'm still angry much of the time, sad some of the time. There are moments when things come along and I go, wow, you know, boy, that made me feel good. Uh, finding my grandfather's house of all the silly things really made me feel good. Uh, things like that occur when I least expect them. But by and large, no. I'm hoping the next generation is going to be happier than I am. Mm. Well, you have made many people in this generation very, very happy, and I thank you for that. <laughs> we're we're going to take some questions. We are limited in our time for questions. So a question is one sentence that ends with a question mark. <laughs> it is not a preamble that includes your resume. It is not a, uh, a rambling story followed by, as uh, Kathleen said at the beginning, your voice going up. There's one right over she, here. She is a, so mean. A question to... I'm actually sweet, <laughs> but, but I, I want everybody to have a chance to ask a question. Hi, uh, it's really a small question. The, uh, being a landed immigrant is really about loss. And this is an area where you can actually collaborate with us. Uh, the, the First Nations in us, this is an area we can make a difference. What do you think? Have you ever thought about this? Okay, I missed part of that. I, I, yeah. I've got really bad hearing. I couldn't quite make the question out either. Okay, so uh, I, I believe being a landed immigrant is about loss. And we feel the loss a lot. People don't think about it. I think this is an area where we can collaborate, the First Nations and us, and we can make a difference. Have you ever thought about that? This is about the subject of loss yes. within the Native community. Sure. With what? Oh, with landed immigrants and the landed idea immigrants. of loss. Okay. <laughs> landed immigrants or land and immigrants? That landed. I, this I is going to be hard. Yes. Landed immigrants. Yes. Um, um, hmm. I'm not sure how to answer that question. What? Uh, collaboration. Oh, collaboration with landed immigrants. Um, sure. I mean, we, you know, Native people are happy to collaborate with anybody, mm -hmm. to be honest with it. We even intermarry with some of you. Uh, <laughs> Have indeed. <laughs> how about that for collaboration? That's how that might work out in the end, I, I don't know, because we haven't had much luck collaborating with the federal government up to this point. Who are also landed immigrants, by the way. Yes. I, I, I do not accept, thank you. I do not accept the word settler. I, I made a point of that with my history teacher in high school. I said, you either have to talk to me about British boat people or Vietnamese settlers, but both were people that came here on boats to an already established society. So one group cannot be settlers and the other one's boat people. So to me, everybody is a newcomer. 
security since 1492. <laughs> exactly. Next question. I'm, I'm not sure we answered your question. Uh, it's a My hard apologies. one. My apologies. It's a hard yeah. one. Although the, uh, the, the new citizenship tests actually require new newcomers to know more about us uh, than most Canadians that have been here for ages. I suspect many landed immigrants, depending on where they come from, know more about the mm -hmm. native history, even though they don't know native history than they, than they might think. True. Other questions? Don't tell me I've scared you off by not letting you do a preamble. There we go. We've got two right down here in the middle. It's going to have to of be Of course, they're in the, the middle with a microphone. Yes, gets passed pass across. The there it goes. Um, hi, my name is Sidra. Us. You want me to stand up? Oh, sure. sure. Um, I was wondering what kind of grassroots organizing you think is um, uh, worth putting the energy into, if that makes sense. <laughs> Can you repeat it? Uh, what kind of grassroots organizing do you think is um, timely to put our energy into right now? For the energy issue? Um, what kind of grassroots organization would it be good for them to put their energy into right now? Time and energy into. I, I'm very sorry. Or get sorry. involved with. It's, 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 I have a terrible time hearing. I, I was afraid of this. Uh, I, I think just lobbying the government to get out of our way. Um, to, to, you know, to be honest, we can do it ourselves. But we've got the federal government and the provincial governments on our on our backs. We're carrying these people. Uh, you know, as I said, we've had court cases that have been settled by the, federal, by the federal courts, and the government just takes the case back to court again. It's sort of like until they get the answer that they want. We have to fight that all the time. We have to put our energies into it, our monies into it, generation after generation after generation. If you look at some of the land claims that are currently active in Canada, you'll see that these things, some of these things are 50, 60, 70 years old. They've been going on that long. And so you've got you know, two or three generations that have been dealing with this. Well, it just saps the heart right out of us sometimes. And we need that just to uh, you know, sort of put ourselves ahead. So tell them to get out of the way. You know, Stop doing that. And we'll do it ourselves. I'd be pretty thrilled to see a whole bunch of non-native people set up roadblocks on all major highways and say, we are not letting the traffic get through until all communities in Canada have potable water. Yeah. That would be all right for me. That would turn me on. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and, if, and if I was still doing Dead Dog Cafe, I could do something like the uh, roadblock report, couldn't I? Uh -huh. Oh, wait, we did that, didn't we? Perfect, perfect. There was another question here, the lovely woman in the striped shirt. I'm looking at you, you're looking at me. Somebody get the microphone to her. There she is. It's <laughs> over here on your right here. There, thank you. Oh, you poor soul with that cold. Thank you very much. Um, I'm curious as to whether or not you think that um, growing environmental consciousness is not a ground where there can be greater collaboration with the whole population of Canada. You're dealing with two people up here who have a deaf ear. Yeah, Did you get that question? The microphone's not really good. Can growing environmental consciousness be an area of collaboration between ah, and non-native can, uh, can the area of uh, uh, environmental, uh, environmentalism, I guess, be uh, an area where we could collaborate native and non-native? Sure, sure, I don't see why not. Uh, and matter of fact, we have. 
Uh, you know, David Suzuki has uh, been around to a number of Native uh, communities. Uh, there's been collaboration. There have been, you know, organizations formed that, uh, that deal specifically with an environmental issue in those areas. Uh, this, is, this is nothing new. Uh, on a vast national level, uh, frankly, environmentalism uh, has not made it to that level. Uh, it gets talked about a lot. Sort of like you know promises that uh, government makes to native people, um, but every time uh, the environment comes up as an issue, economy always trumps it. I, I, I'm sorry, I said that word. Economy <laughs> always <laughs> is considered ahead of it. Yes. And and until we realize that, you know, without the environment, we're not going to have much of an economy. And pe people don't realize that, especially people in power. They want to keep things going. Uh, we're going to be drilling in the Arctic as soon as the ice melts because of the global warming. And that's okay because it's going to open up new oil fields and new uh, sources of energy. And the fact that uh, if the Earth heats up to 2 degrees centigrade, I guess, uh, above what it is now, or it's already on its way up there, uh, we're going to have a hell of a screw up on our hands. We won't be able to stop it. Can we, can we collaborate? Sure. Sure. The question is going to be how and exactly on what. And that's where the grassroots work begins. The government's not going to do it. The corporations aren't going to do it. If anybody does it, you will do it within your own communities. That's where to start. Then maybe it gets bigger. Maybe it really works. I hate to bring up his name yet again, but I saw this great post on Instagram the other day that said, um, it's like Trump said he did not believe in climate change, and the climate said, hold my beer. <laughs> Given everything that's been happening recently, I thought that was quite poignant. We've got a question right in the back here, uh, gray sleeve tentatively raising, there she is. Hi, um, I'm Andriana. Um, I have recently learned about a lot of the indigenous prophecies that go along with environment, so I think that would be a really good connection for community members to go to their indigenous elders and knowledge keepers about that specific question. But <laughs> this is my speech. <laughs> uh, so my question is, um, what are your thoughts about the 30 years of kidnapping from the government and the settlement that happened with the 60 scoop? Uh, what do you think about the 60 scoop? Yeah, and the uh, settlement that the government just uh, put in place. And the apology that, you know, was Yeah, I mean, so I, 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 I'm laughing not because it's funny, but because it's tragic. Mm -hmm. And because it's not the first time it's happened, and I suspect it won't be the last time that it happens. Um, uh, somebody said, it's, it's attributed to all sorts of people. Those who do not understand the history, of le the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And that really is what happens in North America is those those lessons get repeated and repeated and repeated. And I always thought that they got repeated because in actual fact they liked the result that occurred. Um, the 60s scoop is tragic, so was the residential school, so was you know, some of the actions that happened before that. I don't know what's gonna happen in the next couple of years, but I can guarantee you 
that will be talking about that. You know, mm -hmm. after I'm dead, you'll be around. You'll say, oh, Tom didn't know what it was going to be called, but there it is. Yeah. Um, it, these are ongoing things. You have to understand that these are ongoing things. They are not just one-offs. The 60s scoop is not just didn't sort of pop up out of nowhere and people say, oh my God, that was a mistake. You know, residential schools, oh my God, that was a mistake. 60s scoop, that was a mistake. We gotta take care of it. It's almost as though they do these things then apologize later. Tanya Talega just put a book out, uh, just released two weeks ago, called Seven Fallen Feathers, and she does a great job in that book of describing the fact that our children still have to leave the community to get, to get education, and her book specifically is about the students coming down from the north to Thunder Bay and then ending up dead in the river up there and getting fished out one after another after another after another, and this isn't 1960, it's 2017. So that, you know, again, we'll be writing those books for a long time, I think. Yeah. There was a question over here, this gentleman in the front. Did you have a pen in hand? Okay. Yep, stand up. Mike's coming to you. Um, the 2006 Royal Commission um, had a recommendation for a third order of government in other words, Aboriginal sovereignty over Aboriginal land. I just read a book called White Skin, Red Skin, White Mask that explained that rather well. I'm wondering what you think of that and as people like us, if we understood that, could start putting pressure on for those recommendations to be implemented. Yeah, well, um I suppose the first thing I would say is, oh, on, on, on Dead Dog Cafe, we used to read those recommendations that the Royal Commission made. We're still talking about the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Affairs, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, we used to read those because we felt that the government hadn't read them. <laughs> They're out we, of print now. You can't get them anymore. Yeah. We suspected that many of the people who were voting on things that affected us couldn't read. And so we thought we'd do a public service and read some of these recommendations. That was one of the recommendations we, we read on the air. And uh, uh, that would be so alien to either the US or the Canadian government to think that they would uh, give sovereignty to native nations. Now the big joke is you don't give sovereignty to anybody. Sovereignty is something you simply take. And frankly, Native nations have never given that up. We still consider ourselves to be sovereign nations. Now, the fact that other people don't consider us to be sovereign nations, as far as we're concerned, for the most part, is their problem, not ours. But it causes problems for us. So, I mean, you ask the Mohawk if they're a sovereign nation or not, ask them if they've issued their own passports, for instance that uh, most people won't accept, but nonetheless, that's what you do. You know, you look to govern yourself, and that's all we're looking to do is to govern ourselves, to control our own lands, to control our own lives, to control our own destinies. And all we ask is that people get out of the way and stop trying to stop us from doing that. Uh, I don't know of any of the recommendations of the Royal Commission that were acted on. I'm sure there were one or two somewhere but uh, the Royal Commission and the, um, the Reconciliation Commission came out with a great many uh, recommendations. And you know, I don't know what 
Ottawa does with these massive reports that they commission or where they put them. There must be a garburator someplace that these things go into because the minute they're released, at least in Aboriginal affairs, they disappear. I'd love to know where they go. It's amazing that the government continues to spend money on asking the question. And of course, it's usually their friends that get to be the consultants that ask those questions. Yeah. The Royal Commission, you can no longer get those six volumes unless you find a librarian who has one tucked away. Then um, two years ago, um, that prime minister who shall not be named got together with then AFN chief Sean Atlio and traveled all around the country asking, what's wrong with indigenous education? And that same year, uh, on a chartered airplane, a bunch of senators, uh, Nancy Green and friends, came out around the country and said, what's wrong with indigenous education? And those questions have all been answered back in the Royal Commission. Not two months after that, the councillors of uh, Ministers of Education Canada put together a consultation group. None of them are indigenous, but of course came out again say, what's wrong with indigenous education? You know that doing something over and over again the same way and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. It's and like we set that up. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a straight line, I'll walk right into it. <laughs> We've got one more question over here. I don't know how we're doing for time. I don't want to... this will uh, be our last question. When's okay, the this pizza arrive? Well, this will now. be our, our last question. Stop the pizza question. <laughs> Hi, I was just wondering, what advice would you give to writers, especially in the genre of humor? Advice for writers in the genre humor. Well, I'll give you the advice that uh, I give most of my would-be writers who come looking to, for, to me for sage advice. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, and that is, when, when you write, one of the things that you must do is you must be willing to kill everybody in the book <laughs> and hurt them. Um, if you cannot make everybody vulnerable, it's going to show. Um, when I wrote Truth and Bright Water, that was a book that I told my mother was going to be about her life. And I said, are you worried? And she says, no, by the time you're done, I won't recognize myself. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to do it about your life. And I started writing the book. And as long as I had that central character as my mother, I discovered I could not hurt her. I couldn't, you know, make her look stupid or abuse her in any way. And I couldn't write the book. It came off, you know, just didn't sound right. So that's one thing I tell you is that, and, and also, if you're a writer and you're working in the first person, which is very hard to do, because you have to make yourself completely vulnerable. So uh, you've become a character in your own writing, you have to be willing to kill yourself, figuratively speaking. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, that may sound like kind of silly advice, but it, it really is uh, some of the best advice. Richard Wagamese understood that. If you read Medicine Walk, you can, you can feel the great sadness in that book. And you can feel the sharp humor in that book. And the only way he can do that is that he puts himself in a position where nothing is sacred. In the storytelling process, nothing is sacred. Some excellent advice. Now, before I thank Thomas, I'm going to let you know how it's going to run. Um, once I thank him, 
I am going to hand him my book, and he is going to sign it here. Okay? And I know that it will be your feeling that you should rush him up here. But here's what I am going to ask. I am going to thank him. You are going to stay right in your seats. He is going to sign my book. Then he is going to walk right through you to his table where you are going to let him go freely. And then he is going to sit at his table and then you can mob him at will. Okay? That's, that's how oh, it's going to run. God, I love this woman. <laughs> She's better than my mother. <laughs> but before that happens, I just want to say, first of all, on behalf of everyone here and everyone who's ever read you, thank you so much for the stories, for the humor. Thank you.